You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 269 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Today is International Day of World's Indigenous Peoples. And let's celebrate that by talking about ayahuasca and indigenous cultures. My guest in this episode is Carlos Tanner. And Carlos moved to Iquitos in Peru in 2004 and he lived with his first teacher for four years before creating the Ayahuasca Foundation. And the Ayahuasca Foundation envisions a future where a new paradigm uh, of medical understanding predominates every culture of the world. In this new field of medicine, modern technology is used alongside natural medicine to produce a holotropic treatment plan, affecting positive change on every level of human existence. Carlos has appeared before on the podcast, way back in episode 40. Here's Carlos Tanner. So thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been a long time since I was on it last, I think over five years. So for those who might have missed that episode, can you tell who you are and, and what you're doing. Sure. Well, my name is Carlos Tanner. I'm the director of the Ayahuasca Foundation located in Iquitos, Peru. Uh, we hit our 10-year anniversary last year, so we've been operating over 10 years now. But we've had some really interesting developments since we last spoke. In um, 2017, we opened the Riospo Ayahuasca Research Center. And last year, we hosted the first ever government-funded ayahuasca research and the first ever epigenetic studies on psychedelics, specifically ayahuasca. Uh, phase one of that study completed in November, and we're looking to publish the results of that first study and then get started with the second phase study. Uh, I wish I could say exactly when, but we're looking towards July at the moment. So uh, I... In, Besides the research, we offer retreat programs and educational courses and a, a really unique initiation course that's two months long where we uh, teach the principles of the Shipibo healing tradition of Corandorismo that we work with because we work with Shipibo healers from a family that works with a very special tree called Noya Rao, a bioluminescent tree. Uh, I don't think I spoke about that in our last conversation either. But, um, but yeah, we've been moving forward quite a bit with our work with that tree. And now we offer diets with Noya Rao on our retreats as well as the courses that we offer. So what kind of effect does this tree have? It's more uh, of a healing nature. It's not psychedelic, but it's like bioluminescent during the night or how does it work? Yes, exactly. It is bioluminescent. Um, and for that reason... It is quite literally an enlightened tree. Uh, I have my own personal theory about it, which is that it is not an actual species of tree. We did have three botanists from Kew Gardens come and stay with us, and they shot a, a small documentary film. And they didn't feel that it was a, a unique species. Um, 
and and because there are three of them that we have on our property and and now like two others that we've found on on other properties that belong to the coranderos and that i think was really uh what caused me to to feel this way but um the three trees that we have on our property doesn't don't look alike like they they their leaves will glow in the dark but yet their leaves do not have the same shape. Two of them do look alike, and then one of them is not, it, it doesn't look like the same species. So I actually think that they are bioluminescent, most likely because of some sort of symbiotic relationship with another organism, perhaps like a fungi or something. But when you diet the trees, the spirit that you encounter, at least that I've encountered, and that almost everyone that does have uh, interaction with the spirit during plant dietas with Neurau is very special. Uh, it's like an enlightened being, like a like a Buddha. Um, she wants you really to find your own light within. She's constantly like putting. Uh, shining bright light on you and trying to like fill you with bright light. Um, so, you know, it's it's even beyond healing, I would say, or it's the the core essence of healing, which is that we remember or realize our divine selves, you know, our light bodies. And when we commune with those light bodies, then we achieve a health that goes beyond the physical realm and into the spiritual realm and like true true health i guess would be the perspective that i have on it but it's it's really really fascinating and and why i say that having the two plants um on our other coranderos properties added to that was because uh, i work with three different coranderos or the ayahuasca foundation works with three coranderos but they're all brothers and um, they at one point all lived on one property. And then as they made enough money, they bought their own land and built their own houses. And when they bought their land, um, Don Miguel, for example, bought some land and he built a house. He didn't have a Neurau tree on his land. And Don Rohner, the younger brother, he bought his own land and bought and built his own house, and he didn't have a Neurau tree on his land either. But yet, yeah, both of them had dieted Neurau. You know, they had the energy of Neurau, and so when they started having ceremonies on their property in their homes, or eventually in a in a ceremony space called the Maloka that they built behind their house they would call the spirit of Neurau to be with them in those ceremonies, just as a Corandero does with all of their diets or their plant allies, if you want to call them that. And and then eventually they found that there was a Neurau tree in their backyard. And I don't know if there actually was a tree and they didn't notice. I mean, it's a bioluminescent tree. You'd think you might notice but I kind of feel like the tree, one of the trees in their backyard became enlightened uh, because of the energy that was being called forth in the ceremonies through working with the Neurau from their older brother, Don Enrique's property. I don't know if all of that makes sense. It's kind of crazy, but it's also very, very fascinating. Um, as well, like 
there's only two families that we're aware of that work with Noyeral. That would be the Mahua family and the Lopez family. We work with both of those families, Doña Bilma Mahua and Don Enrique, Don Miguel, and Don Roner Lopez. And Don Benjamin Mahua, who is Doña Bilma's father, he was kind of like the pioneer of Noyeral. He brought back the connection to Noyeral. Um, the the history of Noyarao is really fascinating as well. It's really only known amongst the Shipibo, and they believed that it was almost like a mythological plant in the sense that there are stories about it, but no one thought it existed anymore. And then Benjamin, as the story goes, about 40 years ago was traveling in Iquitos and was gifted a pipe that he was told was made from the Neuerau tree. But he never saw the tree. He just had this pipe, but he was able to dye it with the pipe and became what we would call a grand maestro as a result of it. Like his connection to Neuerau allowed him to have this uh, higher spiritual ability, I guess you could say. And he then passed that pipe to his family members. Like they did diets using this pipe. And eventually, Doña Bilma, his daughter, did a diet with that pipe. And she was married, though, to Don Enrique Lopez. And so he did a diet with that pipe. But when he did the diet, he saw a vision of the actual tree. And he went looking for it and he found it and then purchased that land. And then we built our school around that tree. And um, so, it, I mean, it's such a cool story. But Don Benjamin was really kind of like the the godfather, so to speak, of Neuerau diets or Neuerau at all, because he may really have been or to this day may be the oldest person alive to do Neuerau diets. And he said that there were Neuerau trees all over the world, but that they didn't look the same. And so that also kind of contributed to my feeling that Neuerau wasn't a statement of species, but a statement of consciousness in the same way that Buddha isn't really a term like a name of a person. Buddha is a name of a state of consciousness and that there are have been numerous Buddhas, even though we might say the Buddha, which normally that would be like Gautam Buddha, there are other Buddhas that have existed and and so the term Buddha really just means like a state of a, attainment and I kind of feel like perhaps that is actually more accurate to describe what Noya Rao refers to if that makes sense I know it's kind of crazy but that's my best attempt at trying to explain it over the years and also having been in the Amazon a few times I've encountered many stories similar to this one uh, that you try to find a logical explanation and after a while you just have to like give into it I guess it's, there's no point there's too many weird or magical stories I've heard uh, but uh, if you've only heard one of them you could dismiss it but when they're starting to stack up uh, you might as well uh, believe it because you can't deny it if you haven't experienced it well, you could deny it. I mean, any of course, I, I could almost understand if someone heard me say all that and thought I was crazy. I, I could probably understand that. But if you have actually done the dieta and, you know, maybe we could talk just a little bit about what dieta is to make more sense of that. But when a person does a dieta, it's 
really the exercise that curanderos or students of uh, shamanism or curanderismo, they use that method of dieting or the dieta to become a curandero. Uh, so it's like a relationship building exercise and you typically enter into a dieta with a particular plant and in this case it might be noyarao and there's a procedure a ritual procedure that is followed but it's essentially like a contract between you and the spirit of a plant usually those diets are opened for you by someone that already has a relationship with that plant so that would normally be your teacher and um they essentially negotiate the terms of that contract on your behalf, uh, which is essentially saying that you will give up certain pleasures, uh, stimulants, stimulation, um, you're going to give up sex, you're going to give up uh, eating salty foods, sweet food, rich food, uh, spicy food, things that might, you know, uh, stimulate your senses and you're going to to sacrifice those for a period of time and that's part of the contract too whether that's going to be two weeks or two months or two years and um, and then there's not really a stipulation about what the plant spirit is going to provide but it's understood that they're going to share with you their insights their wisdom or their guidance and essentially you form this friendship where then when a corandero needs to diagnose someone or needs to figure out what the best treatment is for a patient, they can refer to their plant guide, their, th this friend in the spirit realm for assistance. And, and so a curandero usually has done dietas with a number of plants and they bring those friends with them wherever they go, uh, kind of like they're a phone call away, you could say, where the phone call literally isn't, isn't a phone call, but it's a, you know, a consciousness intention to communicate or connect. And, and through those connections, through those friendships with plant spirits, they're able to do much more than they would be able to do if they were just by themselves. Um, in a way, I, I use the term godfather, and it almost is like a godfather in the, in the sense of a mafia. Like the godfather in a mafia doesn't have much power as an individual, but through his connections, that he's, you know, very, very powerful because he knows so many people who will do what he says. You know, he has friends in high places. And that's essentially what a shaman is or a corandero is that they've developed and deepened relationships with plant spirits or animal spirits or the spirits of their ancestors. And through those relationships, they're able to achieve much more or to have a power that goes far beyond their individual power. Could a layman in the western part of the world form a relationship with, with any plant, with a, a dieta, uh, not to become a curandero or anything, just for their own benefit? Uh, could they like diet uh, an oak tree or something? Or, or uh, what suggestions do you have regarding that? Definitely. In fact, I, I know that plants want to do that. You know, they they really 
yearn to have those relationships and those connections. And the reality is that most of us, if we did spend time in nature, even if it was just when we were children, we already have a certain degree of relationship with certain plants. Maybe it was the tree in your backyard that you love to climb. Maybe it was that bush in the park that always draw, drew your attention and you always went over to see, you know, what the leaves look like or to smell the flowers or, you know, something. We, we have certain uh, degrees. We might not call them friendships, you know, they're, but there are, it is a level of relationship. But doing a dieta would certainly take that into another level, like another realm, because there would be such strong intention. And that's part of what we teach in the course is not just doing the dietas with Noya Rao or the other four plants that we offer, which are Bobansana, Chiriksanango, Marusa, and Chuyachaki, but to understand how to do a dieta. And we really encourage people to do dietas with the plants that are back in their local environments because, you know, the reality is that no matter who you are, your ancestors relied on shamanism and relied on plant medicine to maintain their health and to achieve those insights and guidance to move forward and it's really just a question of when that stopped you know um, unfortunately it did stop that that culture of shamanism did stop for the vast majority of human beings as we are now but if you go back just a couple hundred years you'll see almost the entirety of humankind was relying heavily if not solely on plant medicine and they were relying on very similar uh, rituals and and procedures just like plant dietas i think that there's a definite correlation between something that's very similar in our religious practices you know if if you're christian then there's a period of time called lent where you're supposed to, you know, you're not necessarily making a contract with a particular spirit, but it is kind of implied that you are going to sacrifice, you're going to give up something, usually purposely give up something that brings you pleasure, and you're going to do it for a particular period of time, and you're doing that as a, as a way to like demonstrate your devotion. And I would say that it's implied that through the demonstration of your devotion, you will also receive something, whether that is a deepening of your connection to maybe Jesus Christ or to God or, you know, I, I'm honestly not very Christian, um, but, but I'm familiar with the, the practice to a certain degree. And, and if you look into Judea, Jude, Judaism or Hinduism or uh, Islam or, you know, almost every religion has some, some aspect of that where you're purposely sacrificing something that you enjoy, purposely like giving up some part of your daily routine, which is normally the part that you would enjoy, like some sort of pleasure. And, it, and you're doing it as a sign of your devotion or a demonstration of that. And I think that you know, I, I don't know for sure, but it wouldn't surprise me if those practices carried over from the shamanic roots of those religions. So this research you are doing, um, how can you ensure that the research is considered 
uh, authentic or serious because it's very easy for mainstream science to brush something away because it lacked this or that and and um, they can just say oh this is mumbo jumbo how what uh, steps have you taken to to avoid these things right well it's obviously very challenging because this ayahuasca is is in a very unique category of medicines that can't really be compared to the vast majority of medicines as the modern world knows them, like pharmaceutical medications, for instance, because ayahuasca is not just something that you take like a pill. It is part of an elaborate healing tradition. And the ceremony is probably more important to the healing process than the actual substance of ayahuasca. Of course, ayahuasca is an important part of it, but the ceremony is also a very important part of that, like the, the rituals and the procedures and and how the the ingestion of the medicine is done and what surrounds it beforehand and what surrounds it after. And that's just with the taking of ayahuasca itself. And, you know, there's attitudes and beliefs that, you know, the ideologies and methodologies within the tradition, it's all quite complex. But also ayahuasca is not just used singularly, at least not in the in the traditional sense in Peru in the Amazon rainforest. It's also part of a much larger system that I've been referring to as cordanderismo, or could be called just plant medicine. And so, for example, like if you were to attend one of our programs, you wouldn't you would attend ayahuasca ceremonies where you would drink ayahuasca but you would also be drinking purgatives to help clean your digestive system you'd be taking medicine to cleanse your central nervous system to cleanse your respiratory system to cleanse your circulatory system to oxygenate your blood to purify your blood you'd be taking uh, vapor baths to uh, remove toxins from your body also to heat up your body stimulating your blood flow you'd be doing cold water plant baths smoke baths there's just a wide variety of different treatments some of them would be medicines that you're taking orally some of them would be in the form of baths that you're pouring over yourself some medicines are used topically some you're putting up your nose all of that combines and so it's very, very hard to just try to isolate one piece of it like you might in a westernized scientific study. And we're not even doing that. So what the study really is, is not just ayahuasca. It is a study of coranderismo or plant medicine as a whole. And that's why it's even more challenging because you can't really compare it like if you looked at the results of our study, you couldn't really compare them to someone else that might be working with ayahuasca because they might not be doing the vapor and the plant baths and the smoke baths and the blood purifiers, and they might not be doing all those things, and so their results might be different. But all of that, I think, is very well understood, thankfully, by the researchers who are all doctors who work for um, the UK government, they're all uh, in the National Health Services. And the grant that they got to do the research is through the British Medical Research Council. And they've 
done their best, you know, to set up the study so that it can be analyzed, hopefully scrupulously, and you know, the if uh, if it gets published in in the res- in the peer-reviewed journals, then it does carry weight. But hi, you know, how can you ever ensure that a study won't be brushed off? There's definitely a lot of bias in science. I'm sure that it will be brushed off by a certain faction. But thankfully, there's a movement now towards psychedelic therapy research. Uh, thankfully, Johns Hopkins is leading that. And so they last year announced they'll be building perhaps the first um, psychedelic therapy research center at Johns Hopkins, uh, which is a medical school in the United States. Imperial College in the UK also announced that they'll also be building a psychedelic therapy research center. Um, Psychedelics have been now gaining FDA approval for research in the United States, and there's also a decriminalized nature movement happening in the United States. That's been in the news last year, and in February there was kind of a massive uh, public outpouring of support for the decriminalization of entheogens or psychedelics. Um, And so Oakland was the first city in the United States to decriminalize ayahuasca. Denver was uh, the first city to decriminalize the psychedelic, which was psilocybin cubensis mushrooms. Santa Cruz, California followed Oakland and decriminalized ayahuasca and all entheogenic plants as well. And now there's over 50 cities that are considering it and even some states, um, perhaps Oregon and Vermont are going to vote this year to decriminalize psychedelics or uh, entheogenic plants. And so there's a real movement. And when you have research institutes like John Hopkins and Imperial College interested in that research, then it definitely lends a lot more validity to it. I think if, if we were doing this research 10 years ago, it might not have, uh, it might not be accepted as well. But because of the movement that's been happening, I think that we'll be able to contribute to that and and our, re- our research will be accepted. At least, you know, I, I can't say it'll be universally accepted. I'm sure a bunch of people will still think that it's just uh, taking drugs in the jungle or something. But thankfully, a lot of doctors know better than that and are pushing to be able to use psychedelic therapy because it's just so effective. MAPS is another organization that has been working to make uh, psychedelics into a sort of medicine and I met the founder at an ayahuasca conference a while back and I entered into a kind of argument because he was saying that uh, in order to market and make ayahuasca an acceptable mainstream medicine uh, they would need to make a uh, an extraction of some sort that makes it each each pill or whatever <laughs> however you would eat it uh, to be equal of course because the FDA you can't have different each time you get the medicine has to be the same quantity or whatever and they also said they would try to remove the the perch quality the vomiting and that and I'm thinking that uh, yes that could work as a healing of course but for me, my experience is that uh, the purge is the vomiting 
uh, or the diarrhea. I never had that, but uh, the the purge is essential to the process. And also, there are other things in the ayahuasca mixture that are not. That's not just the DMT, or uh, it's there are other things uh, that are uh, helping the body to heal. Without a doubt. And first of all, like major props to Rick Doblin, who's the founder of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. I, you know, I'm very happy with the work that he's do- doing. And he, uh, MAPS is our fiscal sponsor. So they were very, very helpful in our project to build the research center. I am, uh, you know, I'm, I'm certainly supportive of the work that he's doing. And he's also brought that same exact point up in our research you know, the standardization of of the ayahuasca. And to me, the reality is, I don't know if the, you know, to, to look at plant medicine and try to fit it into the pharmaceutical world, you know, the pharmaceutical like procedural protocols, I, I don't, I just don't see that ever happening. Um, but that doesn't, I, I don't think that it's necessary. You know, I don't think that's the only avenue, like, oh, we have to go the route of pharmaceutical medicine. But I also don't think the reality is that we're going to be, you know, that there's going to be this widespread use of ayahuasca around the world. I do feel like psilocybin and, and the work that um, John Hopkins is looking at, like, I think that mushrooms are kind of the perfect psychedelic medicine for a globalized version of psychedelic therapy, just because you can, you could grow enough mushrooms for every single person on the planet to eat in a year, you know, it mushrooms grow so fast. And there are tryptamine mushrooms are probably or at least psilocybin cubensis mushrooms are probably the closest uh, chemically speaking to what ayahuasca provides, but you're exactly right. In fact, I don't think that chemists or the classic modern understanding of ayahuasca is accurate, to be honest. Um, I don't consider ayahuasca to be a orally activated dimethyltryptamine experience. Um, I, 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 it is more complex than that to me. The fact that tribes still to this day use ayahuasca without any dimethyltryptamine in it, the Yawa being one of them, but numerous tribes did that. In fact, Richard Evan Schultes, who is uh, the guru kind of of uh, ethnobotany, who spent 14 years in the Amazon rainforest almost 100 years ago as a Harvard botanist um, and really was the first American to be introduced so deeply to the ayahuasca tradition. He wrote about drinking ayahuasca that had no dimethyltryptamine plant in it and having the most profound visions of all of his experiences, but they weren't very brightly lit. And that's a very common thing that within the indigenous tribes, they say that the ayahuasca is what provides the insight, what provides the uh, effect, but that the chacruna, the, di- the dimethyltryptamine containing plant, gives them light, like makes them brighter, makes it possible for us to see them. And, and that seems to make more sense to coincide with why there are indigenous tribes that don't use any dimethyltryptamine. If you were to kind of 
figure that into the modern chemist perspective, they shouldn't even be having experiences, you know, at least not very powerful ones, but yet they are. And to the point where they don't even need or want to add a dimethyltryptamine plant to their brews. So I definitely feel like there's more to it. If just the simple fact that it's called ayahuasca, if it wasn't the vine, then wouldn't they just call it chacruna? Like, wouldn't the medicine be called chacruna? And why don't you ever really hear, at least very rarely, do you hear someone talk about what chacruna spirit did for them? You know, like very, very few people say, oh, and that's when I met the spirit of chacruna and chacruna's spirit was what helped me so much. But yet you hear countless times people talk about meeting the spirit of ayahuasca. And so, you know, to me, there's definitely more to be learned in our understanding of how ayahuasca works. And I don't really think that it could ever be answered simply by looking at the chemistry. Um, and that's part of the challenge as well, is that ayahuasca is more than just a chemical. And, and that goes, you know, a contrast to the vast majority of pharmaceutical medication and the way modern medicine is practiced. So we have a lot to learn. And I think what the most we can learn is really about the power of the tradition, the power of the ideologies and methodologies that surround the use of the medicine, because we don't really have that. We don't have a, an effect optimizing mechanism for our medicine. And to me, that's what the tradition of shamanism or curanderismo is, it optimizes the effect of the medicine. And it does that on a mental level because of the beliefs. When you go into a ceremony space, your consciousness changes the same way that it might when you go into a church or a temple. And when you take the cup and you go to drink it, you've drank ayahuasca, there's built in that you're going to have this communication where you state your intentions as if you're speaking to the spirit of ayahuasca. Those are really powerful to me. And I think we, we would be able to learn a lot just from that. And an idea that I had, which I think would be an easy experiment to do, would be to have ceremonies in Western medicine where you take your chemotherapy, for example, if you are diagnosed and prescribed chemotherapy, I, my mother went through that and I was there for her treatment and the chemotherapy was done in a hospital and, you know, a hospital already is actually like a, a trauma inducing environment for a lot of people, you know, just by going into a hospital, the way that the hospital is set up induces an anxiety and and so if you're combining those elements you know you're going to have chemotherapy but you're already in an environment that's causing anxiety and then when a person takes chemotherapy typically they watch tv they read a magazine they talk to people they do everything they can to try to almost ignore the fact that they are doing a chemotherapy treatment and not to mention that the lights are on and noises are happening. People are maybe coming in and out of the room and there are announcements being made on loudspeakers and things like that. And it's certainly not like a ceremony at all. 
And I think that all of those elements contribute to the effect of the experience or the effectiveness of the treatment and how they affect a person's consciousness. And, and so what if you flipped it and learned from the indigenous tradition of ayahuasca and instead of going to a hospital, you went out into the woods somewhere to a center that was designed for chemotherapy ceremonies. You are going to give the exact same treatment except that you're not going to be in the same environment and your ideology is going to be affected as well. Normally, when you feel nauseous in a typical chemotherapy treatment, the nurse will just go and get you some sort of anti-nausea medication or something. It's not built in that that's part of the process, the way that it's built in in an ayahuasca ceremony. Many people, after having an ayahuasca ceremony, talk specifically about the purge, kind of like what you're alluding to, where the purge was a very important part of their process. But that was already built into the ideology. There's already built into the ideology and understanding of the ayahuasca experience that you're going to purge, but that the purge is going to be a removal of toxins, whether they be on a physical level, an emotional level, mental level, or spiritual level, something that you don't want to have in you will be removed. And on a consciousness level, that is, can be very powerful to actually have a physical expression of the removal of aspects of your being that you don't want or that don't serve you. There's real power to that. And so if that becomes part of the ideology within the use of chemotherapy treatment, then you're not going to be asking the nurse for anti-nausea medication. You're going to be accepting that part of it as part of your healing. And so through the crafting of an ideology and methodology that serves to enhance the effectiveness of a treatment, I think that you could actually create a more effective chemotherapy treatment if you used what could be learned from an investigation of the traditions that surround the use of ayahuasca. And ultimately, you might end up with a very more effective treatment for cancer using the exact same medication, just by altering the way that it's used and the way that it's given. I think that sounds like an excellent idea. And personally, uh, I've ne I've always hated vomiting. One reason I stopped in my youth, stopped drinking myself drunk and became a, uh, like a non-drinker full-time is the reason I so much hated vomiting. But... Uh, I view the vomiting on the ayahuasca as a completely different kind of vomiting. And in fact, the very, I, the very few times I've had a ceremony and I did not vomit, I almost felt disappointed. <laughs> so uh, I think the purge is the, uh, is the high point of the ceremony. And it doesn't need to be vomiting, but vomiting or crying or anything like that. I would also like to add that um, I've had... Uh, uh, two children and in both cases during the birth because um, same thing as you said it's not a very spiritual place to give birth in a hospital so uh, we played uh, uh, in the first the first birth we played Icaros uh, which I thought was I mean the mother she was too busy giving birth so I don't know how much she got out of it but me as a spectator 
uh, I found that to be great. And the second time we actually used only rainforest sounds, which also made it uh, more uh, magical. Uh, so I do, I do see the point of your idea that what if you gave birth, if you set up a a a a, a child delivery station in the forest, you know that would be amazing. I love that idea totally. I, I'm a one of my kind of secret heroes. I say secret because she's not very well known, but her name is Ina May Gaskin, and she's the president of the International Midwives Association, which she created. And she's just an absolute fantastic person. And for the last 50 years, she's been devoted to encouraging people to have natural childbirths. And she started a place called The Ranch in the United States and where mothers interested in having natural childbirth can go and stay in their last few weeks and give birth completely naturally. And she's written several books, uh, one of them called Spiritual Midwifery, and she had a big impact on my life and, and especially my wife and I when we had our daughter. And ultimately, because of that, we decided to have our child at our house in our bedroom. And so my daughter, who turned six in September, um, she was born in our bedroom. And it was just me and my wife. And a midwife came over um, to deliver the baby. And it was fantastic. I mean, it was just such a calm and peaceful experience. And I definitely feel like my wife was way more calm. Be I, in fact, that was probably my biggest anxiety was that my wife was so calm. <laughs> because like, I was worried that she was so calm because I, you know, I was conditioned to believe that childbirth was a particular way from movies and television and things like that. And I'd never experienced one you know, in person until that day. And, um, but I really feel like, you know, when her water broke, we didn't do anything. <laughs> like we, we noticed it. She changed her pajamas. Um, and we didn't like hurry and pack our bags and rush off anywhere. We just stayed in our house and we put on some music that we enjoyed and uh, drank some tea and, you know, we just hung out together and it was a very positive experience the entire time. And I'm so thankful that we we decided to do it that way. Of course, you know, however you have your child, love will fix every problem, in my opinion. Um, but I but I felt so thankful and especially because my daughter um, lived in that room. You know, she that was that became like where she slept. And so to have like my daughter born in a, in a room where she then lived, um, we, we don't live in that apartment anymore, but she lived there for four years, you know, slept almost every night of her life in, in that room, just a few feet from where she was born. And, and that's how it is done in the jungle. You know, that's how it's been done all again, like all of our ancestors, they didn't, uh, they didn't do birth a different way. I'm not a big fan of, of having a child in a hospital simply because hospitals, unless they do have a specific section, hospitals are not designed to have natural human processes take place. You know, that's not like 
they didn't say, let's build a hospital so that people can go through their natural processes here. They're, they're places where you're going to fix something that's broken, you know, that's, and, and I don't knock a hospital. If I broke my leg, I would go to a hospital for sure. But there's nothing broken with a pregnant person. You know, a pregnant woman is not broken. There's nothing wrong. And I think that hospitals tend to have a conditioned perspective that views everyone that comes in there as some level of broken, you know, something needs to be fixed. And in the case of pregnancy, that's the furthest from the truth. So I'm a big advocate of home births and at the very least of natural birth. My wife didn't want any, uh, I don't know what it's called in English, but uh, the injection in your back so it doesn't hurt so much because she, she, she wanted to make it a natural birth, you know. And uh, the doctor really tried to convince her to take this shot because basically between the lines she said if there's trouble it will make my easy, job easier. And uh, after a while, I got really angry because it's like, uh, well, there, there is no trouble yet. And if there will be a trouble, I'm sure you could make that injection uh, if you need to. But I mean, like, um, it's annoying how they try to push this chemical into her when she didn't want to. Um, but I would also like to add uh, another thing, uh, which is interesting. I did a podcast a while back about somebody who studies near death experiences and basically uh, in the old days everybody died at home and um, in those days it was quite common for the people watching the person who died to sense or even see some sort of beings or energy that came to take the body away and this has disappeared because we're dying in the hospital Usually you don't need to be there. Uh, you miss the death because that's the why they're in the hospital. You know, you have staff there and maybe there's a noise, uh, an alarm, and you know the person is dying. Uh, but when you have the person in your house, you you won't miss it. You you will like sit around and wait till it happens. So uh, this moment uh, is is not uh, something you you miss out on. It's an excellent point. And it's basically the same thing. You know, we ha- unfortunately, we have gotten to a point where people are afraid to die in their homes. And, and that's a real shame. Because just like you said, people die. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm going to die, you're going to die, everyone that you know will one day die. All of my elders have died. And it it is also a part of the human process. There's actually nothing wrong with you when you're dying. You know, of course, there are exceptions to that. Sometimes you're not. It's not your time to die. Like you don't want. <laughs> that's not when you want to die. But it does seem like um, hospitals have taken the the an attitude towards death, which they've kind of pushed on society where that's where you should die you know like if you're if you're going to die then get to the hospital and it's a real shame and again that's not how it was and you know I do think that there are people still having those spiritual experiences if they are able to 
even in a hospital, like able to have um, that type of interaction because there are family members that will stay with their relatives in those moments, even if they're in the hospital. I know that that was the case with my grandfather, but um, but you're right. You know, it's uh, I, I'm not a big fan of what's happened. I think like it's time for us to overall overhaul our medical system. And the Western medical model, I think, has probably been taken over by uh, the pharmaceutical industry. And it seems to also have like a real kind of ugly tint of uh, profit involved, you know, so you can keep someone alive for weeks just with a device, um, but you charge that, you know, you, you charge for that heavily and I think there's some statistic that shows that the vast majority of money that's spent on medical care is that last year, which, you know, if that last year of your life, you spend like all your money just so that you die a little bit later or something. I'm not sure. So there's some serious problems like with the Western medical um, industry which is a weird term, you know, for healthcare to even call it industry, but that's what it is. I mean, that's the reality. You can buy stock in it, which is also pretty weird. Um, it shouldn't be profitable. And hopefully psychedelic therapy might add to that and might, might improve that, you know, might like, uh, I'm not sure which is it, uh, the Shipibo you are, uh, working with or another group uh, anyway wh- whichever it is what are their uh, rituals or what do they do when somebody dies if a funeral or do they burn it or uh, what's their view of dying is it just moving on to the next world or yeah exactly there's um you know the there's the belief that the spirit never dies And that's certainly a belief that I have. Um, And so it's kind of like you have a vehicle and you have that vehicle for a time period. And then when you die, it's really because the vehicle got worn out. You know, the vehicle stopped working for whatever reason. And, And then the spirit moves on. And... There's an interesting part, at least that my teacher, my first teacher talked about, which was how we have multiple souls. We have one spirit, but our spirit is made of multiple souls. And I found that to be really interesting. Um, He said there were six. I'm not sure how he found that out or why it was six, Um, but that your body has one soul of your spirit and but you're you also have souls already that are not in your current body and and so when you're when you're when you die and you're and that soul leaves the body it's it just goes back to being in the spirit and then that's that one soul can go into another body but also you'll always have your your ethereal soul or however you want to call that. There'll be like dimensions. So your soul might be on the physical plane and you'll have another soul that's on the spiritual plane or, you know, I'm not, 
whatever you call that plane, but there's always one that is accessible. So even if my grandfather has been reborn, let's say, and so there's another person who has the soul of my grandfather maybe somewhere on earth now, I will always still be able to feel and contact him through his other souls that aren't in bodies, if that makes sense. Um, and so, yeah, so uh, people are buried. Um, at least I, you know, my teachers' relatives, I, we, they, they buried them. And, um, but I, I don't know about, you know, I'm sure there's about a, a lot of different processes within the, there's so many different indigenous groups. Um, but yeah, the, the main belief is really that the spirit is eternal. That's, I, I would say, probably a common theme throughout indigenous tradition as a whole. When I had children, uh, I actually became fearful of death for the reason that I, you know, if you die and your spirit moves on and you go to the next world or whatever happens, it feels like you're leaving them behind. Uh, but what you just said, uh, you, you you wouldn't because if that's true, then you one soul remains and hangs around in a way. <laughs> that's right. It's a, it's a, I mean it's a it's a kind of a reality in in my family. Um, my wife was very very close with her grandmother, and um, and her grandmother died in their home. And she was there, and they just had a very close bond. And she, like when, when our daughter was born, she totally felt that her grandmother was there. And there was a point where, as I'm sure you remember, um, she was so worn out. You know, when, when when you have a child, like God bless all the mothers in the world, there's a, a level that they, you know, they just work so hard because your baby wakes you up every 20 minutes, you know, wants to breastfeed, wants something like every, you don't ever have like a solid period of time where you can sleep. And, and there was a time and a story that she told where she saw her grandmother and she just said, like, could you just watch Zoe, our daughter, for a little while because I'm so tired. And and so her grandmother, like, watched Zoe for a, a period of time so that she could rest. And, you know, of course, someone might say that that was some delusion or something or fantasy or daydream or, or whatever, you know. But again, like when you experience it, you know that it's not. And after my grandfather died, I had similar situation and my mother passed away, unfortunately, and it was the same way. Um, I had interactions with them afterward and I've had interactions with people who have passed on. Very, very real interactions. In fact, my second ceremony with ayahuasca uh, a very close person in my life. Uh, he was my godmother's son. 
And I don't know if there if the term exists, God brother, but that's a cool one for me to use, especially because of this interaction. But he came in my ceremony and he had my his he put his hand on my shoulder and I felt his hand on my shoulder before I saw him. You know, I, I, I like felt something like a hand on my shoulder, looked over, it was a hand and it was attached to a person, but a person made of light, a spirit. And uh, this was my, my second ceremony. So I was, um, you know, I was like in awe, like, oh, my God, this is so real. Like, I'm looking at this person and it is so real. I didn't recognize him because I hadn't seen him in over 12 years, 15 years. It had been a long time. And but he had died just like six months earlier. And my mother had told me because it, you know, it was my godmother's son, so it was like her best friend. And um, as I was looking at him, just trying to like figure it out, because I was so like, wow, I can really feel you touching my shoulder. And I'm looking, my eyes were open, you know, I'm like looking at him like, this is so real, like, wow. And then my friend who was in the ceremony with me called over and was like, Carlos, I'm looking over at you and it looks like there's a man standing next to you. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Like, I'm looking at him. And she's like, it's freaking me out. And I could look right in his face. And he was the kind, you know, just looking at me with kindness. And I said, it's okay. He's a, he's a good guy. I still didn't know who it was. But she was like, are you sure? Because it's freaking me out. I'm like, no, I'm sure. Now, instantly I was like, well, if she can see this guy, I'm not making this up. You know, you, how is she, what is she seeing my hallucination? Like, and it's so real for me. So I put my hand out. I shook his hand. I asked him what his name was. And as soon as he said his name, I was like, oh, my God. Like, I recognize you now. And and then I interacted with him, which was kind of hilarious because he had committed suicide. And, you know, I, it's, it's obviously pretty hard to imagine that scenario where all of a sudden you are now looking face to face with the spirit of a person who died six months ago. And I remember, you know, I, I know my mother had told me that he had committed suicide and my mind was basically like cracked, like the floodgates were open, like anything was possible at this point, you know. And I remembered some thought, probably out of some sort of Christian belief system, that if you commit suicide, you're stuck in purgatory. I don't even know. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not very Christian, but it's some, maybe that's somewhere and and so I, I said to him do you need my help like is that why you is that why you're here and he started laughing and he was like no <laughs> you need my help and I, like, oh, I see <laughs> but it was a monumental moment in fact I I really doubt that I would be doing what I'm doing without that moment because at that point I realized without a doubt that spirits are real and not just like energy real but like full-on complete conscious being real you know like as real as I am 
and and that shaped like that core truth that formed from that interaction was essentially the core truth of shamanism you know when you have such a truth of the existence of spirit in such a way then everything that you build on top of that is solid if that makes sense so that interaction was absolutely powerful for for me and and my path forward and the rest of my life that that's an amazing story and um... One thing I want to say to get back to the baby thing we talked about is that one thing I noticed having had two babies is that anything you can do in a ceremony when a person is having problems works on a baby. For instance, uh, you can end up in a loop. So a good thing to do is to ch- change position, for instance. Uh So that's one example. So if a baby is crying, you know, if you change position, it stops often. And uh, uh, also if you move too fast or do fast movements, if you're helping somebody uh, who's uh, in a in a ceremony, if you come on too fast, it's very, it can be very scary or it makes you jump. And uh, so you have to move very slow if you're helping somebody to the toilet. And same with the baby, you know, you can't, if you come too fast, if you change the diaper too fast, they start jerking around. And so I I have this theory that the first six months, at least, they're in a kind of ayahuasca uh, allegorical uh, ceremony where they are experiencing the world from, from that kind of perspective. Well, I think that we never grow out of that it's just that we we kind of cover it up you know we 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 cover it up with a lot of explanations and and conditioning and we we continue to like reduce the perspective and bring it down to this kind of manageable level i guess or whatever society has decided you know but but it's always accessible and that that innocence of knowing all or or experiencing it all the wonder of it all and part of that i think probably starts with just language you know once uh once you start learning words then everything starts to get named and just naming something tricks us sometimes into thinking that it's not mysterious anymore you know Like I joke about how we have we are always in the presence of magic, but because we can name it, we don't recognize the magic anymore. You know, like you see a caterpillar turning into a cocoon, and you're like, "Oh, that's metamorphosis." You know, like, wait a second, what? Like, what is this caterpillar gonna do? And And that's like the you know the the most obvious example, but even just a seed growing into a tree, you know, even just the wind blowing or what a cloud is or a bird flying or a fish swimming, like all of that stuff is just is absolutely mind-boggling. But the fact that we can name it makes it somehow that it doesn't really deserve our attention anymore. 
And, you know, with my daughter, and maybe you're experiencing the same thing, I feel like I just, my job as a father is just to try so hard not to mess it up. <laughs> you know, like, just don't mess that up. Like, try, just try to let her teach me how to really understand the world for what it really is, which is just absolutely fascinating. And within that fascination is this inevitable gratitude for the ability to experience this thing that we all get to be, which is alive and to live in this most incredible world. And so when she's fascinated by something, I really try hard not to just name it, you know, don't just explain it away. Like don't have her not want to look at it. And, and that's what I kind of feel my job as a parent is, is just don't mess it up. Like keep her safe, but don't mess it up. Yeah. And they ask the, why is that or why? And they usually keep asking it to a point where you finally realize, I don't know why, you know, <laughs> like I have no idea why it's like that. So it can be a, a good method to learn yourself, but also, I think uh, very young, young children are completely uncorrupted and uh, I think we have a lot to learn from them. For instance, I was trying to teach my uh, older daughter about uh, uh, compassion. So I, I told her during Christmas season that because uh, she was wondering what a homeless person was because she saw this homeless guy on the street and I explained to her that he didn't have a place to live and what we should do is because uh, she's getting Christmas presents so we should uh, buy a few things we should buy something and then give him and I, I was thinking like food a pair of gloves you know like stuff he would need but I asked my daughter uh, so what do you think we should buy him and she said a house <laughs> right oh man that's the toughest part of it all right when I mean, I literally feel like if we could just accurately and truthfully articulate the problems of the world to children and give them the resources to back up their decisions, they would solve them all. You know, like homelessness, it's like if you talk to a child about that, they're like, what? Like, wait, what? why don't you just build them a house? And you're like, oh, well, you know, it's complicated. And you're like, the reality is it's not complicated, man. We could all just decide that there should never be a homeless person and there wouldn't be. A person should never go hungry and we could make it so, you know, and, and it sucks when you have to come, you have to explain a reality that just shouldn't be the reality, you know? We, we shouldn't have this. This shouldn't exist. Our society should be better. And children know that. And it, I guess that's like part of it is like trying not to mess that up so that our children can actually go on to solve the problems that we're too like, we're too caught up in or something. We're too scared or I don't even know why we're not solving those problems, but we have that the solutions aren't so complicated we 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 try to pretend like they are but they're not 
in the U.S., I don't know how it is where you are, but in the U.S., for every homeless person that we have, which is like half a million people, there are half a million empty houses that are for sale. And so we have a half a million vacant houses with no one in them. And we have half a million people who are living on the streets. And we can't figure out how to fix that. <laughs> you know, like, it's, it's sometimes the answers are too simple. And children are happy to point that out to us. A final question here that I've been thinking about. Uh, and uh, because you now have a child yourself, maybe you have an answer to it. Uh, I would love for my daughters to experience uh, ayahuasca or psychedelics, of course, in the correct setting. setting. Uh, but I'm not sure how to do it. Of course, I would wait till they're older. But I mean, like, for me, I mean, I I did it. It happened naturally and I did it. I had a, an opportunity to do it years before I actually did it. And it was good I didn't do it because I did it when the time was right. So you don't want to like force it. Maybe they maybe they grow up to be people who don't even need to do it. I don't know. But what have you been thinking about this? Um, I'm not sure how old your kids are. My daughter's five. And so she knows what I do, you know, and I've talked to her about ayahuasca and what happens in ayahuasca ceremonies and about plant spirits. And, um, you know, she's obviously very curious about it. And but I don't have a plan. So I um, I imagine that the day may come where she wants to go to a ceremony. And I could see that she could go to a ceremony but not drink ayahuasca just to see what it's like. Um, and But, of course, I, my life is probably more unique than most people when it comes to ayahuasca just because I run an ayahuasca center. So it's very easy for me to go to an ayahuasca ceremony. Um, and it would be very easy for me to bring her to an ayahuasca ceremony. And But... It uh, you know it all happened organically. My um, you know my plan, which I'm so thankful that my wife and I are both on board, exactly, is that we're just not going to um, lie to her. You know we're not going. We're we're just. I don't keep anything from her. I um, I find a way to explain anything that she asks about. So. You know, when she was, man, I guess she was probably three years old, she asked why she knew her grandfather and her on my side and her grandmother and grandfather on her mom's side, but not my mom. Like, why why didn't she know my mom? And, and so then at three years old, I told her what it was to die. And, you know, it, it, it takes some creativity sometimes, but... Um, And so for that same reason, like I've been very, very open with her about what I do and what ayahuasca is. And and so if it happens that she decides that she's interested in that, then we'll just figure it out as we go along. And and if not, then she won't. And I don't uh, I'm certainly not going to push her in any particular direction, but I do feel really good about 
what has happened in the last 10 years, specifically with regard to what is now a legitimate term, which is psychedelic therapy, and the fact that there are institutions offering degree programs in psychedelic therapy now, and psychedelic therapist will be a profession. And who knows, you know, maybe your children or my child or there will certainly be children in this coming generation who will go on to become psychedelic therapists. And I'd be super happy if my daughter decided to do that. But whatever she decides to do, I'm sure she'll make an important change for the better. So if people want to uh, experience uh, your center or or uh, what what can you offer and where can they find it and uh, can you talk a bit about that yeah definitely um so our website is ayahuascafoundation.org that's a-y-a-h-u-a-s-c-a foundation.org and there you can find information about our retreats we have three different retreats an eight-day retreat a two-week retreat and a three-week retreat The two and three week retreats uh, include dieting with Noyarao. And then we have a really special program called the four week healing empowerment course. And that's uh, really what it what the name implies a course that where we teach people how to return to their instinctual nature, how to connect with nature. And, and how to revive their ability to heal themselves and take responsibility for that aspect of their lives. And and then there's a our eight-week initiation course, which is something we've offered for the last 11 years. We've had uh, 40 courses and over 500 students, and uh, that's a very, very special program, and that's where we teach the principles of the Shipibo healing tradition Uh, where you make ayahuasca, you learn ikaros, you learn how to open and close ayahuasca ceremonies and how to treat patients and um, with plant medicines. That's a really uh, a course that I'm very, very proud of, which was inspired by my own education and apprenticeship with my first teacher. And um, all of that information can be found on our website. We have a YouTube channel also if you search for Ayahuasca Foundation. And last year I did a 10-episode series called Lessons from Ayahuasca where I talk about specific uh, lessons or categories of aspects of, our, of my life that were enhanced or improved, or at least I felt they were, by my work with Ayahuasca. And I talk about those uh, you know, as a a way for people to understand how their lives could be improved through the use of ayahuasca, but also just to have that be a perspective to consider because I think that there's really a lot of value. My my personal view is that consciousness is the end-all, be-all, that everything is consciousness and that consciousness is the way through all of our problems can be solved, whether they're whatever plane of existence they uh we find them on whether we're physical problems or emotional or mental or spiritual consciousness can be the way forward and ayahuasca is an amplifier of our consciousness by means of amplifying our sensory perceptive ability and so through that process and then through the uh you know gaining of experience of how to navigate that amplification of sensory ability we can learn to condense 
healthy beliefs into truths and we can melt harmful truths back into the realm of emotions and evaporate them back into the realm of ideas so that they can be released completely from our lives and that would be things like childhood trauma or PTSD and things like that. It's all fascinating. Um, if you're interested in per perhaps collaborating with us on our research, there's a research page of our website where you can fill out a form that will contact me as well as Simon Ruffle, Nigel Netspan, and Wai Feng Tsang, who are the three doctors that are leading that research. Um, hopefully that research will be published. The current situation that the world finds itself in seems to be delaying that process, but we're hoping that it will be published in the next couple months. And we're also hoping to start the phase two trials of that study, which will be expanded. The epigenetic aspects of that study will be expanded to look for over 20 genetic markers. The first study just looked at three and um, we'll be including chronic pain and um, autism spectrum and some other like aspects before we were just looking at depression, anxiety and trauma, childhood trauma and PTSD. Um, and so we'll continue to expand that research and uh, hopefully we'll continue to demonstrate to the world how ayahuasca and other psychedelic medicines can be tremendously beneficial for us. And if you do have any questions, you can contact me through the website or through the YouTube page, or you can follow us on Instagram or Twitter or uh, Facebook or all of those platforms. We're trying to be everywhere, just like everybody else, I guess. Thanks a lot for taking the time to be on the podcast. Oh, it's so great to connect with you again. Congratulations on your kids. And uh, maybe another five years from now, we'll check in again and see where we're at. Check out ayahuascafoundation.org. I want to close this episode with a song I played before on the podcast many, many years ago. It's a remix by Yuin Husami of an amazing Icaro called Icaro de Pinion Colorado by Maestra Maria. Maestra Maria, she passed away a couple of years ago and I still think of her. Sitting in ceremony, hearing her sing this particular amazing Icaro was always a treat. Freedom is in the mind.
Ik ben niet te 